I'd like to start this morning with a little bit of a straw poll on how some of us wake up. You wake up in the morning. How many of you, my show of hands, how many of you use the old school alarm clock that plugs into the wall and goes neat, 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 neat? Who does that? Okay, fair amount of you. How many of you use the, the standard alarm on your phone? I wonder if anybody has the fancy alarm on their phone. You know, we, we were in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago, and I shared a, a, a room with Pastor Casey, and he had one of these alarms. He said, what time are you getting up in the morning? He said, somewhere between 6.30 and 7. I said, what do you mean your alarm is set somewhere between 6.30 and 7? He said, well, actually, I set it right next to my bed, and it senses my sleep cycle, and it knows when I'm coming out of the right cycle at the right time, somewhere between 6.30 and 7. So I don't know what time I... Does anybody have an alarm like that that you use? <laughs> Millennials are uniting. <laughs> Who wakes up every three hours with the baby? Few of us are there, yes. All right, who wakes up every three hours to use the restroom? I'm just kidding, you don't have to put your hand up for that, that's Okay. I think my favorite and craziest waking up story is from when I was in high school. We had early morning basketball practices, and one of my uh, friends really struggled to get out of bed for those, and another friend got really tired of having to run extra wind sprints because he wouldn't get out of bed. So he went over to the friend's house at 5 o'clock in the morning, knew the garage code, pumped it in, grabbed a bucket of water, came and dumped it on him at 5 o'clock in the morning in bed. Said, wake up! I'm not running for you anymore. True story, I promise. All of that to say, there's a whole host of ways that we can wake up, some admittedly more desirable than others, but we all know that we do need a good way to wake up, even if we don't really want to, even if it's more comfortable to stay under the covers, especially as it gets colder out here. What Genesis 19 does is it calls us to wake up to some uncomfortable realities, I'm sure as Gary was reading, some of you were thinking you'd rather stay under the proverbial covers and not touch these topics. If you're here, you're not yet a Christian, you don't know if you believe the Bible, I want you to know I am really, really glad that you're here. I'm really glad you're here. I think we can agree that Genesis 19 paints a really dark picture of the world but as we go out and experience the world, we also see it to be a pretty dark place. So you might not yet find the Bible authoritative on all matters, but we can agree that it at least paints a realistic picture of the world. There's some of you here that reading Genesis 19, this is maybe the most unbearable chapter in all the Bible for you because you are reading your own story or your parents' story or your child's story, and right now, you're not sure if you can actually make it in this room for the entire sermon. I want you to know, if that's you, that I've considered this message in light of you, and I do believe there's real hope for you in this passage. But if you're not able to make it through, I understand. Perhaps we could find a chat, time to chat this week, you and I or one of our pastors, and, and we love you. For others of you, it, this doesn't hit quite as close to home, right? For, for whatever reason, God has spared you and your family from some of these horrors. But, but, but I think deep within all of us, when we look at these, these 
difficult stories in the Old Testament, there's a temptation to ask, haven't in some ways we moved past these Neanderthals? Hasn't the rise in science and education taken society to higher levels than these uneducated, archaic characters? And of course, in some ways, the answer is yes. Right? About 100 years ago, women rightly received the, vote to, or rightly received the right to vote in America. That's good. Certainly, we've made significant progress racially in the last 50 years. Abortion has lost its federal protections. And yet, pornography is still a $100 billion industry worldwide. In the U.S. alone, it generates more revenue than ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. Furthermore, more people are in slavery today than at any point in human history. Worldwide, slavery has spiked by 20% only in the last five years. Much of this being driven by our insatiable sexual appetites. So, so, so yes, in, in some ways things have gotten better. It's good that we're less judgmental of interracial marriages and the LGBTQ community. But education and science haven't moved the needle like the secular world would like us to believe. Statistically, we've become more enslaved to sex and to wealth and to oppression. And lest we think that Genesis 19 is merely a tale about the ancient equivalent of Las Vegas, let me remind you of Judges 19. Judges 19 records a story with astonishing similarities to Genesis 19 with one key difference. As Genesis 19 occurs in Sodom, Judges 19 occurs in Israel, in the tribe of Benjamin. And so the spirit of Sodom is alive and well in the world that we live in. But the spirit of Sodom is also alive and well in our churches, grievously. So we do well to listen this morning and to listen carefully. The stories of Genesis 19 speak powerfully to us. And they call us to wake up, as the sermon is titled. There's four key realities from Genesis 19 that we are called to wake up to this morning. First one is this. First reality that we must wake up to is that sin is blinding. Sin is blinding. We'll spend the majority of the time on this one, so don't worry, I've not lost track of the clock or anything like that. It's a major thrust of Genesis 19. Sin is blinding. So uh, uh, look back at verse 11 with me. We'll start there. If, uh, if, if you're new with this, I'd invite you just to keep your copy of God's word open as we'll be referring to it regularly throughout. We, we look at verse 11. And they, this being the angels, struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So the men in Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful, and they were uh, literally blinded and miraculously blinded because of their sinful passions. That's, that's the literal sense of what's going on. But there's also a spiritual reality that is all throughout the Bible that we read that sin is blinding. It causes us to be blind to it while we're pursuing and engaging in it. We can't see it in ourselves. We make excuses for ourselves. 
This is why Hebrews 3 tells us to be warned about the deceitfulness of sin. It lies to you and blinds you. It's why Jeremiah 17, the prophet would write, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Implying you don't even know how desperately sick, how wicked your own heart is, much less someone else's. And oftentimes, being in a a different time period helps us to see things more clearly that those in the moment missed. Certainly, you can can think of that in other historical time frames and look back and say, man, how could people in, in this century or that century allow such a thing that seemed, well, they were blinded, right? So all of that brings us sort of to this question, what exactly is the sin of Sodom? What was the sin of Sodom? And and some would argue that the sin of Sodom was what might be categorized as social sins, as a lack of hospitality. They weren't hospitable to these men who came and visited. Others would say it's a, a lack of concern for the poor or for materialism. We might call social sins, and, and they would point to passages like Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. We see it on the screen. We read, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Certainly the social sins are a very real part of what's happening in Sodom, but there's also sexual sins that are uh, certainly spoken of, and they are a major deal. Sins of adultery, and sexual assault, and homosexuality, and incest, and the list could go on. It's important that we recognize that all of these sins flow out of pride, where I want to see myself as the authority and disregard God. I want to be the captain of my own fate. We disregard what he says about holiness and pursue a sexual ethic that we want for our own. Or we disregard what he says about justice and absolve ourselves of the need to care for the poor. Isaiah chapter 3, speaking of the sin of Sodom, focuses on the aspect that they arrogantly proclaimed their sin. They ran to their sin and ran to tell others about it. They didn't trip and stumble and fall into it. So the picture of the whole Bible of Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of comprehensive wickedness. In every way, shape, or form, every attitude, every thought, every motive... And all of that being said, the Bible still does present a clear picture of homosexual behavior as the primary cause of the judgment. We read in the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. Now, some will hear me say that, and they'll object and say that sexual assault is the issue. They say the Bible permits homosexual relations in a committed, consensual, monogamous relationship. The problem with this view is that, that Jude isn't speaking of sexual assault, but of sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Romans 1 defines this unnatural desire as homosexual behavior. 
And other places in the Bible do speak to the horrors of sexual assault. See, Genesis 34 is one example. But our story today is silent on that kind of sin. That to say, if the primary issue was violence, God could have said so, and he does say so elsewhere. But the fact that he doesn't here tells us that homosexual behavior, however practiced, was the primary cause of the judgment. Pastor Kevin DeYoung has a helpful book on the topic. I, I would commend it to you. It's simply titled, What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality? Maybe 100, 150 pages, uh, a gray book, uh, helpful. But here's how he comments on this. He says, of course, we'd be quick to say that much, most homosexuality is not like this scene in Sodom. Many of us would have family members, friends, loved ones, neighbors, coworkers, people that we find to be decent men and women, and they're not like these men in Sodom. And so we understand that there's some distinction, and yet there's no escaping the conclusion, however uncomfortable it may be in our world today, that this sin is particularly heinous for being the sin of homosexuality. As we talk about this, I recognize that in the room there's likely an older generation that's thinking, Pastor, I'm so glad you're speaking on this. Please say it louder. I want you to know, friend, that we will continue to stand boldly and unashamedly on the word of God. And you say, some of you have asked me, Pastor, why don't you speak on these things more often? Simply say, friend, I'm bound by the word of God. Any authority that I have in this pulpit is grounded in God's word. And expositional preaching serves as a sort of safeguard against hobby horses, whether they're mine or yours. And so when the Bible speaks to an issue, I promise, me, I promise you and myself, you'll hear me speak to that issue. There's simultaneously a younger generation listening and hearing this and saying, Pastor, it's difficult for me to hear that you could even think in such a way or say such a thing publicly, much less say that that's what God has to say about this. I want to say to you as well, friend, I'm bound to God's word. It's not just me. It's all of us that must tether ourselves to the word of God. And you may look at an issue like this and say, yes, I know that Romans 12 says to submit your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Yes, I know that 1 Corinthians 6 says the body was not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. But neither of those things change how I feel about this issue right now. And so if you're on the fence about this, and you're you're not sure what you think or believe, you're still working through it, let me give you one thought to ponder. If we never allow the Bible to challenge our thinking, or to present views that we might find offensive. If we never do that, then we have to ask if we're actually worshiping the God of the Bible, or if we've created our own God in our own image that always affirms us and always agrees with us. And if you're still wrestling here, I'd love to buy you lunch this week and and, and hear your heart and have a more nuanced conversation together. But wherever you're at, it's important for all of us to recognize this. Whether you live 4,000 years ago in Sodom, or you live today in America, we are all being shaped by something. Might be TikTok, it might be Gab. Might be ESPN, might be the Daily Wire. Might be The Office, might be Pixar. 
but we're being shaped by something and nothing is neutral. They all have a picture of the good life that they're trying to woo you with and convert you to. They all have a picture of where true joy is found. They're all telling a story of where the functional hell is that you want to avoid and the functional heaven is that you ought to seek. For all of us, we have to recognize that the only source of both life and light, the only source for both of those is the word of God. We go back to Psalm 119. Maybe you've heard me pray that we would be under the word of God that gives both life and light. That's me pulling prayers from Psalm 119 when I say that. We start in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word, because God's word imparts life. And light, we jump down to verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Friends, we must be shaped by God's word. And we must be shaped by God's people. It's as if the word of God is the light that shines light into the room and God's people together serve as a collective mirror where I can see myself more clearly. That's why Hebrews 3 says that we're to lock arms, to warn each other that we're not, uh, we don't lose track of things, that the deceitfulness of sin doesn't overtake us. We need each other in this task. So let's, let's kind of walk through each of the characters here in Genesis 19 and see how each of them were blinded by sin. Let's start with Lot. He was, he was blinded by sin. He began to allow things as normal in his life that should have been absolutely unconscionable. He valued respect in the city square more than personal holiness. You read in verse one, he was sitting in the gate. It's likely an ancient Near Eastern euphemism for being some kind of a civic leader. Maybe he was on the town council. He wanted to be respected there. He says, I'm in the world, living missionally, we might say. But he was blind to how he was living like the world. And Lot evidently had worked for a while at protecting his daughters. Verse 8 tells us they'd not known any man. They were virgins. Which means that most likely they had homeschooled the daughters and kept them out from being anywhere in the city at all. And yet Sodom had his heart even as he was taking some steps in a good way. Somehow Lot values hospitality and strangers over his daughters and does unspeakable deeds. He's become blinded in ways that are incredibly difficult to comprehend, especially as a father. Verse 14, he tries to warn his sons-in-law. But apparently Lot hasn't taken God seriously for a very long time time. And when he tries to get serious about God, they think he's joking. He's blind to his long-term spiritual apathy. He thinks he has an authoritative spiritual voice. And they think he's a joker. Verse 17, the angels tell Lot to flee to the mountains. And he says, no, 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 city life's better for me. I know better than what you know. He's become blinded to his own wisdom or lack thereof. 
At the beginning of Lot's life, you go back to chapter 13, he's blessed immensely with riches. In fact, he has so many riches that he and Abraham have to separate because the land can't hold both of them. But his heart becomes so ensnared by riches. He loves them. He loves being in the, in the city where there's more opportunity to do business that he's taken down by. He's blinded. And he ends up living in the cave in the middle of nowhere. He's blind to how much riches and worldly pleasures control him. His daughters decide to get him drunk at the very end, and certainly they are culpable for that. But Lot is so comfortable with alcohol, so far removed from any form of self-control that he goes into a drunken stupor, not knowing when they come in or go out. Looking back at verse 33 there. He's blind to how much he uses alcohol as an escape mechanism from his stressful days at work. Perhaps encapsulating the whole thing of how Lot was blinded, look back at verses 15 and 16 in your copy of God's word. We read, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Friend, do you linger? The angels around telling you to get up and flee from sin, and you become blind to how deadly it is, and you linger. I wonder if you're not a bit like Lot this morning. You say you're committed to Christ, but those around you think you're joking when you try to get serious about Jesus. Your spouse yawns because you're good at Jesus talk, but you don't show fruit of repentance. Your kids chuckle. You say, I'm committed to Christ, but you haven't committed to God's people. You attend only when it's, you know, there's nothing else going on. You give when it's convenient. You serve only when you can't find an excuse not to, maybe like Lot, sin has blinded you and the spirit of Sodom is alive and well in your heart. You love the pleasures of this world even though you're here on Sunday or watching online. Sin is blinding. We look at Lot's daughters, like, like Lot, they had been blinded by their sin and they began to allow as normal things that should have been unconscionable. We're told they thought they were all alone, that all the earth had been destroyed. There was no other hope of posterity except for the course of action that they took. So in a strange turn of events, these women, like their great uncle Abraham and their great aunt Sarah, become blinded by their fears and take matters into their own hands because they can't trust God anymore. We know what's best, they say. They're blinded. Lot's wife like Lot, has been blinded by her sin and begins to allow as normal things that should be absolutely unconscionable. She loved the pleasures of Sodom, even as she's being removed from Sodom. She turns back and is immediately turned to a pillar of salt. Friend, it's so critical you hear this morning the blinding effects of sin in your life. I'm reminded of the Puritan author, John Owen, who said it so well and so succinctly, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Guys, wake up! Wake up! Don't play with sin! It's deadly. 
It's blinding. You can't keep it contained. And some of us are tempted to to think of things a little bit differently, to think that, that you don't have a major sin issue right now. And that's the first indicator you've been blinded. Owen, again, writes, sin is never less quiet than when it's most quiet. Think about that. Sin is never less quiet than when it's most quiet. It's like when the kids are playing and they get super quiet, you know there's a real problem. If you're saying this morning, Justin, I don't know what sin I'm supposed to repent of, the kids are really quiet in your living room and you should be really scared. Many of you will know that John eleven thirty five is the shortest Bible verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. And I wonder this morning, if you already have that committed to memory, you just take the next step and commit the second shortest Bible verse in the whole Bible to memory. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, and verse 32, do you know what it says? Three words. Remember Lot's wife. She's being pulled away from Sodom, and her heart is longing for the pleasures of Sodom. Just, I'm, in, I'm in church. I'm here on Sunday morning. You're preaching to the choir, man. Remember Lot's wife, wife. Because you can be removed from the city of Sodom while your heart is still gripped by the pleasures of Sodom. I wonder if you've been on on an airplane at some point with one of those little yappy dogs that comes in a purse. You know those things? Probably my tone there gives away how I feel about them. But I wonder if if Lot and maybe you see sin a little bit like those yappy dogs. They're annoying, but they're small, controlled, and able to be contained. Guys, wake up! Sin's not some little yappy dog. 1 Peter 5 says says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He seeks the isolated person. The one off on their own is the idea of 1 Peter 5. So waking up to the blinding effects of sin this morning means you get serious and maybe you just stop listening to the rest and start confessing to God right now. And this afternoon, you call somebody, you text them, you say, man, I need to confess to you. One or two brothers and sisters say, I've been blinded and this is deadly and I've got to deal with it. It's not a cute little dog running around. It's a full-grown, 500-pound lion. And sometimes you see those lion trainers that get mauled by them And they say the most stupid things I've ever heard in my life. I was such a nice lion. I trained it so well, it ate bananas from my hand. Dude, it is a lion. Like this is the the top of the food chain. They kill everything. That's sin in your life. Put it to death, it blinds you. That's the first reality we have to wake up to, Genesis 19. We'll move a little quickly through the, more quickly through the next couple. Here's the second reality that we must wake up to. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You see, Genesis 19 gives us a parallel story of the flood, which is found in Genesis 6 through 9, and both warn of coming judgment. Now, there's some parallels in the text that I'll show you in a moment that make it obvious, but the New Testament writers who knew their Bibles the best connected these two events 
with a single focus of saying, as judgment came at the flood, as judgment came on Sodom, you too be warned because judgment is coming on the whole world. If you're taking notes, Luke 17, 2 Peter 2, you see both Jesus and Peter do that. That's Luke 17, 2 Peter 2. And there's a minimum of 12 other passages throughout the Bible that warn of judgment as it came on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the wise listener hears these, considers their sin, and turns away. I believe we have a chart on the screen to help show these parallels. Genesis 6, Genesis 19, there's inappropriate sexual Relations, Genesis 6, angels come to earth for sex with women. Genesis 19, the men of Sodom want to have sex with the angels. Finding favor, Noah 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 19, Lot found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a destruction, Genesis 6, 13, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence. Genesis 19, 14, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. There's a preservation we see in both. Noah and his family are spared from the judgment just as Lot and his family are spared from the judgment. By a direct intervention from God, 7.16, God closes the door to the ark once everyone is inside. 19.10, the angels grab Lot's hand and remove him from Sodom. There's judgment that's rained down by God. Chapter 7, verse 4, we read for in seven days, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. 1924, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And yet in the midst of it, we see God remembering, 8-1, God remembered Noah. 9-29, God remembered Abraham and delivered them to a mountain, 8-4 and 5. God delivers Noah to that mountain, whereas God delivers Lot to a mountain. And right at the end of it, when you think that we would have learned the lesson, we've been delivered by God's direct intervention, there's drunkenness. That Noah goes out and gets drunk in front of his sons, and Lot gets drunk in front of his daughters. And as a result, there's offspring produced that's hostile to Israel, where Noah's offspring are cursed and hostile to God's people, and Lot's offspring are born and become hostile to God's people. I go through all of that so that we don't miss what is abundantly clear in the whole scope of Scripture. It is beyond 4K. Whatever's more clear than 4K, it's this, that throughout the whole Bible, God is a God of salvation and judgment. It's both. And to remove either, to be marked only by grace or only by wrath, is to create your own religion apart from the Bible. We have to recognize, we talk judgment here, that Noah used huge beams to construct this ark that would deliver him from the judgment. And Jesus would be mounted to two large beams so that he would take the judgment of God so that it would not necessarily fall on you. We read that Lot was delivered up to this mountain to be spared from the judgment, yet Jesus went up onto a mountain himself so he could take the judgment so that you wouldn't have to. Friend, I'm telling you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, please hear me. Judgment is coming on sin. What is sin? It's when we turn from God. We rebel and try and do things our own way. The Bible tells the story that God created the universe good and perfect, and mankind turned and went their own way. And as a result, judgment is coming. Yet he sent his son Jesus to take the judgment so that you wouldn't have to. You would confess him as Lord, ask him to forgive you of your sins, 
You can be saved from your sin and from the coming judgment, and Christ becomes your life and changes you from the inside out. Because this judgment is not going to be pretty. It will be terrible. The judgment of hell that's coming is not as, as some say. It's, it's not where the, the beer is the coldest and the chicken wings are the spiciest and you get the most friends watching the game on the big, at that big screen. That's not how it is. So be warned. We've all sinned against a holy God. And we need his grace. And Christian, you to hear me here. This is not merely a sub point for someone who's not a Christian yet. I wonder if you, like Lot's son-in-laws, sons-in-law, laugh at the coming judgment. You say, no, of course I don't laugh at that. Yes, I understand if, if you had a written doctrinal statement in your life, you would probably affirm the reality of hell. But I wonder if in your functional doctrinal statement, the real one, you thought it was actually that urgent. And the reason I say that is if we rewind the clock about two years, a little more than two years, back when the world lost its mind, we thought the world was coming to an end, boy, there was no way you could be kept away from Costco and toilet paper and bread and milk and flour and sugar. It matters! Things are about to get really bad. We gotta do something about it. You're leaving work early, you're calling everybody you know, make sure they know your phone's blowing up with 67 different text threads. When you know that that's coming like that, it changes your actions. And yet if we looked at the way we pray for those around us who don't know Christ, the way we seek to evangelize, the way we invest our time, talent, treasure, I'd say a lot of us are like Lot's son-in-laws just kind of joking around about, yeah, maybe it comes, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Christian, hear this, judgment is coming, and it must change how you live. Wake up, hear these words, and change. It's the second reality we have to be woken up to. Judgment is coming. Third key reality, prayer is effective. Prayer is effective. Look back at verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Chapter 18, last week's sermon, we see Abraham fervently praying for Lot and for Sodom. Saying is this, there's 10 righteous people, please spare the city. Turns out there weren't. Look at verse four of Genesis 19. Here's what we read. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. <laughs> Abraham has prayed, God, if there are even 10 righteous ones, please spare it. And God makes it abundantly clear. He went down and there was not, simply couldn't be found. But God says this, even though there's nobody righteous, I'll still act on your prayers. I'll still intervene in mercy. I heard you and I will act. Your prayers mattered. Wasn't on the basis of anything good in Sodom, but I'm still gonna intervene. There's all sorts of reasons we don't pray, right? Right? Talk about how busy we are, we don't know what to say, our mind gets wandering. 
At the root of the issue, prayerlessness is a gospel problem. I am failing to believe what the gospel says about God or about me. That he's actually merciful, he'll actually intervene. Or about me, that I actually need his help that much. I can sort of do this on my own, I don't actually need God's help. Or you become cynical and say he's not gonna do anything anyway, so I'll find a better investment of my time than praying. The gospel says that you desperately need God's help. You can't fix your spiritual blindness. You can't rescue yourself from the coming judgment. And the focal point of the gospel, Jesus lifted up on the cross, makes the ultimate sacrifice to meet your ultimate need. Jesus says, see, I really do care. I really will act, even at great cost to me. So friend, do you pray big prayers, urgent prayers, fervent prayers? Daily, hourly, minute by minute. Yes, the quick ones, and yes, the long ones together. Do your prayers reflect a heart that believes in the power of the gospel? Yes, I know the people that you know don't know Christ yet. They seem far away. They seem not receptive. It seems like this diagnosis I have is more than God will deal with. Gospel, he says, I see you, I care, and I will act. I wonder when the last time is you fasted, even for a single meal, to pray fervently over those on whom judgment is coming. Would you commit to fast for a day, 24 hours, or three days? But say, prayer is effective. And when you start to raise the stakes a little bit, We start to find excuses like, well, I don't know. It's not going to work like this or like that for my body. Friends, prayer is effective. It's effective. Some of us go down the rabbit trail. Well, I don't know. Is God really in control to really change things? Oh, sovereignty, responsibility. And it's just a, 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 a rabbit trail that distracts from the main point. There's an old theologian from Princeton, A.A. Hodge was his name, and I just love how he says this because I think it cuts right to the heart of the matter. Here's what he says about this. Does God know the day that you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, would that be the day that God appointed for you to die? He says, quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for you to live. Because guys, when it comes to prayer, sometimes we just need to quit asking stupid questions and say, there is a God who made the universe, sustains the universe by the word of his power. He loves me deeply, cares for me. He intervenes in human history, and I'm going to bring it to him and let him figure out the details. Prayer is effective. Maybe you need to wake up to that reality this morning. Here's the fourth, here's the final reality. Grace is undeserved. Grace is undeserved. Fact of the matter is when we think about Lot's life, there's really nothing there that seems righteous. In fact, it really seems like if you said, paint me a picture of unrighteousness, it would look like this. And yet, yet, somehow, in 2 Peter 2, we find one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to read and to believe. Listen to what 2 Peter 2 says. 
he being God, rescued righteous Lot. Say, I don't understand. Well, me too. Let's keep reading. Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If there ever was a person that 1 Corinthians 3.15 was written for, I think it has to be Lot. 1 Corinthians 3.15, again on the screen. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So just, I, don't, I don't understand. This guy doesn't seem righteous at all. Yeah, if it's on the merit of his own actions, you're right. But the fourth reality that we all have to wake up to is that grace is undeserved. Because it's awfully easy to sit in a room full of church people and look at Lot and say, what a self-righteous, arrogant fool that guy was. Certainly I've got a moral leg up on him. Certainly God is more happy to have me on his team than Lot on his team. Friends, salvation can only be through free, undeserved, sovereign grace. We actually see God grabbing Lot and pulling him, almost kicking and screaming out of Sodom. The story of Lot confronts any system that says good deeds can merit God's grace. It's received only by faith. You certainly don't see Lot exercising his free will to choose God here, do you? But here's the good news of it. If there's grace for Lot, then there's grace for you, regardless of how bad your story is. If there's grace for a lot, then there's grace for you, regardless of how bad your story is. And there's another deeper reality embedded in the graciousness of God here. Verses 37, 38, at the very end, we're told of these grandkids born to Lot, Moab and Ben-Ami. Moab means from daddy. Ben-Ami means son of my people. Both of these boys grow up to foster an entire lineage that's hostile to Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, the Moabites, they hate Israel so much, they go out and hire false prophets to call down curses on the Israelites. Like, that's a pretty serious level of hatred. I will spend my own money to go get some bimbo off the street to call down curses on you because I hate you that much. And yet, this is unbelievable. In the story of Ruth, do you know who Ruth was? A Moabitess. God says, your entire family lineage is marked by drunken, incestual relationships. A lineage of sin, sin, sin. Rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. And I will intervene with completely undeserved grace. And you, Ruth, the Moabitess, you will bring about Jesus. He'll come from your line. God intervenes. He says, I will undo this wickedness. And even this wickedness that is hard for us to, to read or to think about at all is used by God to show his immeasurable grace, his incredible redemptive plan. So you're listening. You say, Justin, this is hard. I know. 
See, I, I come from a, a long line of drunks who commit heinous sexual sin. I've been giving in to homosexual desires in my life. Friend, God intervenes with undeserved free grace. See, I come from a long line of self-righteous religious people that are completely blinded by their sin, that do one thing on Sunday, put on a, the, the mask, and all through the week I know what they are the other six days. There's free, undeserved grace that God is intervening with for you today. So Justin, I come from a, a long line of people. My, my dad, my granddad, my great-granddad, all the way up, they love the pleasures of this world. You wouldn't believe the stories that we can tell. We hate them, though. Makes me angry to think about it. Friend, for you and for your family, there is free, undeserved grace when God intervenes. I say, Justin, I come from a, a long line of illegitimate children. I don't know who my dad is. Don't know who my mom is. Don't know who my granddad is. Never will. Friend, those sins aren't your fault. You're not held responsible for them. But there's free, undeserved grace when God intervenes. This means then that you are saved by grace and your life must be shaped by grace. It means you see the world differently. It means you say, like the old hymn, be thou my vision. Because I can't trust my own vision. I know that I shouldn't trust my own feelings. I know there's lots of times I shouldn't even trust my own thoughts. And that's why Christians for over a thousand years have been singing, Be Thou My Vision, one of the oldest hymns in our arsenal. We'll sing that in a minute. But friend, here's what this means. To be saved by grace means that you must be shaped by grace, and it means that you see people differently. You don't first see the drunk. You don't first see a gay person or a trans person. You don't see an adulterer first or a self-righteous person first. You see those made in God's image, blinded by their sin and in desperate need for undeserved grace. Which is to say, you see people just like you. Friend, you might need a spiritual alarm clock this morning to wake you up to these realities that you need undeserved grace. You gotta quit stumbling through life saying, yes, I'm saved by grace, but not being shaped by grace. Let me close this out a little different this morning. I'm gonna read you from 1 Corinthians 6. I invite you just to close your eyes and listen to this passage. So, or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles were inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Oh, praise God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have to read that again, verse 11, this is glorious 
Praise God in your spirit as I read this, church. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Let us pray. Father, oh, Father, such were some of us. Were it not for your intervening grace, your free grace, your undeserved grace, All of us were blinded by sin in various ways. All of us blind to the judgment that's coming. All of us pursuing our own ways, not wanting you, not caring about what you care about. And oh, we need your grace. God, I pray this morning for those that are here, those that are online, those who are listening later, that you would wake them up to the blinding effects of sin, to the coming judgment, to the effectiveness of prayer. They can come to you because you actually do care and will act to the undeserved nature of grace. Jesus, we thank you that you went to that cross on those wooden beams, on the mountain to bear the wrath so that we could not bear it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.